Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. This is the first of a internal mini-series of 1930s science fiction. Uh, I'm going to be doing a whole series devoted to science fiction that came from the decade before World War II. Uh, This was an important era for science fiction, which we'll get into. But today we're focusing on one author who's very special to me, and one of her earliest, her I think her first big professional sales, Chamblot. And this, is, of course, is Catherine Lucille Moore, more often known as C.L. Moore. And we'll get into C.L. Moore into this history here in a little bit. But let's introduce our panel uh, coming from across the ocean to your brain holes is Cora Bullard, who uh, I have podcasted with before, but this is her first time on Postcards. She was on Dickheads with me when we talked about Lee Brackett's amazing The Big Jump, uh, which of course was Dosey Doe with Phil K. Dick's original uh, first debut novel, Solar Lottery. So definitely go check out that episode if you haven't, because Lee Brackett is important to the C.L. Moore story as well. Cora, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Thanks for having me. And uh, you just got off another podcast talking about Robert E. Howard. So you're already in the mindset of the Weird Tales era and um, excited that you could be here. Um, Greg Cox uh, has been on Postcards before. He was on our tribute episode to Richard Matheson, uh, who Greg served as Richard Matheson's uh, editor at Tour Books uh, in the later part of his career. And so definitely go back and check out that Richard Matheson episode because that one's great too. But Greg is a, uh, I believe, New York Times bestselling author because he's written a whole bunch of media (laughs) tie-ins. So many, he's written more, well, first of all, he's written multiple Star Trek novels inspired by single sentences from Star, Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan which I think is a really impressive thing that you've turned sentences from Star Trek into novels. But Greg, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, um, you collected Chamblow in, in a book, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, yeah, Tomorrow Sucks, and that, that's where, where you collected it. But first, we're going to just talk about C.L. Moore, uh, the person. And um, she has a special meaning to me because she is from the state of Indiana. In fact, she was born in Indianapolis, the uh, same city that is most famous for producing Kurt Vonnegut, uh, as far as writers go, Uh, uh, which is great, but I like me some CL more here. So, uh, and she also went to IU, which is the school my father taught at. So one of the cool things that I discovered was that the dorm she lived in was literally a five or 10 minute walk from the house that I grew up in. Uh, Yeah, which is pretty cool. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But she was born in 1911. And, um, you know, 
basically she was going to college in the great depression era and that's why before she even declared a major at iu she she was you know had to go and had to leave and um but you know what my this might be a good time to show the pictures um and feel free to jump in uh especially cara i know you really like the history of these people um and uh let's see so first, this is C.L. Moore. I believe this is a picture of her from the 40s, um, but uh, I'm not entirely certain of that. Um, but what, what's really cool is, is that I did find a picture of her dorm. This is Memorial Hall. Oh, I've never seen that one. Yeah, this is Memorial Hall. This was the dorm that she lived in. It's a part of what's called the Wells Quad now at IU. And um, it's surrounded by uh, classroom buildings now. It's not a section of the campus that's known for dorms. And mostly the, the, the interior of the buildings has been kind of redone to be classroom space and laboratory space. So it's not a dorm anymore. But at the time, uh, by the way, one of the cl closest things on campus. Now you can see IU, one of the things about IU is that um, Indiana University is very close to a bunch of limestone quarries. And that's why the entire campus is almost entirely limestone. Uh, that wall you see in the front uh, is still there on Third uh, Avenue. And um, that, that's one of the major thoroughfares of Bloomington. And so there's constantly traffic going by there. And the building is built out on the left and the right and makes a quad going the other direction, going north. And this is, this is a south view of Memorial Hall. And uh, one of the things that was really close to there that I think everyone should be interested in with CL Moore, and I think is really interesting, is the Kirkwood Observatory, one of the oldest um, astronomical <laughs> observatories in Indiana that's still standing uh, was very close to Memorial Hall. It was in walking distance and they regularly during the 20s and 30s, according to my research, um, looking up the, the department website is that they would routinely do um, astro parties uh, during that era. And so it's a good chance that uh, CL Moore was looking at the stars through the observatory. I mean, I can't there's nothing, she didn't write anything about it, but um, it's possible. Now, this is what the uh, dorm rooms at Memorial Hall look like. This is one of the um, lounges at the top. And then the bottom, that's what the rooms uh, look like in Memorial Hall in the 20s and 30s. It actually looks pretty nice for a student dorm. At least, um, I don't know what they, they normally look like in the US these days, but um, I've seen European ones which look worse. <laughs> nowadays <laughs> right and memorial hall was the first women's dormitory at iu the very first one so um which is pretty cool and then let's see um yeah well we'll have some other ones later uh to look at some pictures later but um she ended up leaving um IU because of the Great Depression and not having she had to go back to work and she ended up getting married 
I, I think she got she had a first marriage before Henry Cutner. Uh, no, I think he, they were engaged, but they did not get to marry because the die uh, because the man he was a co-worker he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which might be either suicide or she always said it was an accident. But apparently, coroner's report someone dug up said it was suicide. Well, that's an interesting note that I did not know. Um, yeah, so uh, Bobby, De do you know Bobby Deary? He uh, he ducks he uh, he ducks us up. Uh, okay, gotcha. And um, she was at IU through the fall of 1929 to the fall of 1930. Um, at IU, she published her first three stories in The Vagabond, which is the still running IU literary journal. Um, the online um, Vagabond journal has these stories. You can read them online. Uh, I did this weekend. It's good to know. I've never, I didn't know that the first three stories were available. Yes, and the first one, Happily Ever After, is kind of a funny twist on Cinderella. I'm not going to say anything more about it, but I do think it's very interesting. So if you look up um, IU Vagabond online archives, you can even Google, you can put CL Moore in the Google window, and they come up fairly quickly, and they're there. You can read them. Happily Ever After is really kind of a satirical, like, bent on Cinderella, but it also has a little bit of a kind of feminist take. I don't want to say any more, but I think people should read it for themselves. Um, but that was the first thing she ever published in the first story. And um, other than that, the other stories were just kind of the other two stories that she published there were just kind of literary stories. Now, originally, when I was talking, when I wrote my review of this book, I assumed that she had written Chamblow when she was living in the dorms, but that's not the case or doesn't seem to be the case because she was there in 1930. I thought she was there later. Um, the story was likely written in 32 or 33. Um, and so she was working in Indianapolis at the time at the um, at a bank, which is the Fletcher... Um, oh, Fletcher have... Trust Corporation. It's in Company or Corporation. I don't yeah. remember the last, but it's Fletcher Trust. Fletcher uh, I Trust. I just wrote an article about her, so I so it's still on the top of my mind. Right. Best now, I reviewed the Wikipedia article on her this morning. Okay. <laughs> right. And the Fletcher uh, Trust building, which was at the time the tallest building in Indianapolis, and it's still one of the tallest, is now currently a Hilton Garden Inn. So <laughs> when you go to Indiana on your Kurt Vonnegut, C.L. Moore um, uh, trip, and you see the Captain Janeway statue in Bloomington, by the way. So I'm I'm setting up a trip here for to Indiana that you are all going to want to do. Uh, you can stay at the building she worked in, the Hilton Garden Inn, and the outside of the building looks exactly the same as it I did. I hope they have a memorial plaque or something, or something for her inside or outside. I don't know if they do or not, but that's something we can. They work should. On. They absolutely should. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something we could work on. Uh, also, but now we will say IU does claim her for her one year that she was there and publishing. <laughs> and you'll see a lot on, on IU history websites that they talk about C.L. Moore as being a pioneer of science fiction that went to IU. And distinguished so, alumni of one year. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, uh, now, I mean, she probably would have finished if it wasn't for, um, um, you know, uh, if it wasn't for the Great Depression and all that. And she really like 
you know, didn't have the money. And a lot of people real don't realize that the reason why she didn't go by the name CL Moore to hide her gender, she did it because there were lots of rules about, you know, having multiple jobs and getting benefits and things like that during the Great Depression. Because um, if if you were making other money, they would cut her hours at work um, because they would give her hours to other people. So she didn't want her hours cut at work. So that's why she went under the name C.L. Moore. And, uh, and by the way, I'm serious about this trip to Indiana. I think people should do it. Now, I'm not just saying this because it's my home state and hometown. The, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum is incredible. And you can go on tours of Kurt Vonnegut's childhood home and uh, if anybody reaches out to me, I'll give you all the information of where you can go to the CL Moore stuff because uh, that's going to be a little harder to track down. But you can do that. And will you do that? Like I said, the Captain Janeway statue is in Bloomington because Bloomington is not only where CL Moore went to college, but it's Captain Janeway's future hometown. And they built a statue uh for Catherine Janeway that has I a map I love that they do this in the US that they have statues for fictional also for, well for Star Trek characters we do have statues for fictional characters but uh they're like characters from 19th century literature, literature or something we have a couple in my hometown for fictional characters but yeah, right. um they're Aldark from nine from the early 20th century a uh, local by a local uh, local writer it's not a, it's not a Star Trek character I don't think a single Single, we don't, of course, uh, I don't think a single character of uh, Space Patrol Orion, which was, it was not Germany's, but it was, it premiered within two, 10 days after the original Star Trek. And there's a lot of similarities. Well, but and not I will a say. A character of them has got a stature. One of the actors actually has a memorial plaque because he lived, he lived his final years near where I live. So I've seen the plaque, but um, it's for the actor, not for the character. Yeah, here in America, you know, Lucy has a statue. You know, Samantha Stevens from Bewitched has a statue. Yeah, I, I kind of like this because it's, it's fun. I've, I've seen one for Captain America in uh, in Brooklyn, where Steve Rogers supposedly lives. But it's, I think it's fun because our uh, here it's mostly, oh, it's a statue of Bismarck. And here we have one of Kaiser Wilhelm and the other Kaiser Wilhelm and Kaiser Friedrich and so on, who only ruled for 99 days, but he's, but the guy got a lot of stages for that. For, 90, right. for ruling for 99 days. <laughs> well, we were lucky in Bloomington that we had two really, really active, awesome Star Trek fans and Mary Beth and Peter who like, like really like ro rose, you know, got all the, raised all the money and, and all that. And I do know uh, Kate Mulgrew is actually visiting the statue for the first time in October. Um, oh. <laughs> I saw that was happening. Yeah. That's, is, that's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we have a fine nerd tradition in Bloomington, okay? So um, uh, university town has exactly. nerds usually. <laughs> um, and uh, so so CL Moore uh, was one of the reasons why she was such a reader and writer is that when she was young, she got very sick and she was frequent she was ill a lot, uh, which is a story that is familiar to uh, me as a PKD uh, person because Philip K. Dick, that's the reason why he read a lot. That's the reason why Walter Tevis read a lot. Um, so John there's Stoker a was a sickly child who read a lot. Yes. Yeah. And um, so, so this is a common theme with a lot of these, that these sick, sickly kids who sat around reading science fiction magazines and became the same thing. And by the way, Walter Tevis also in the region uh, in Kentucky, but a few years later. Um, Where in Kentucky? 
yeah, Kentucky is right below Indiana. Yeah, so. I mean, whereabouts? Which which place? Which part of Kentucky? Which town well, actually, you know? because I have family in Kentucky. Oh, uh, Lexington is where he ended up. He was. He oh, lit- yeah, that's where my family lives. Yeah. <laughs> that's where relatives. I still have have family in Lexington. And I've visited. Yeah, Tevis, there. I think, lived. I in never San- made it to Indiana. Never made it further north. Well, and, uh, we went only went south. We never went north to or towards Ohio or Indiana. Well, now you have probably some for some other time. <laughs> yeah, it's not a far drive for you if you go to to Lexington to visit CL Moore sites. So um, probably just a couple hours. So um, so CL Moore, she was ill a lot. She did a lot of reading, so she read a lot of fantasy. She read a lot of science fiction. She she was clearly now. There's no one's going to convince me that she wasn't reading weird tales all the time before writing this because she nailed the weird tales voice like right away <laughs> with Chamblow. So uh, the whole cosmic horror thing, she knew what she was doing as far as like, uh, I'm gonna place a story in weird tales and I'm gonna write it for weird tales. It's, it's very clear to me. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I think. It's a, it feels very, it's very much a weird tales uh, style of the 19, late 20s and 1930s. It's very, it's a, it's also very, I always found it hard to believe that this was her first story. And of course it wasn't. She had those three stories in the Vagabond. And, um, and it's uh, because it feels very, very developed for the, for the first story written by a woman who would have been 22 or 23 years, years old at the time. Right. Now, Weird Tales at the time was edited by Farnsworth Wright who uh, was the second editor of Weird Tales, I believe. He, he was, I don't remember who was There before. was someone before him, Ed, Ed, Edmund Bird, Edward Bird. Weird Tales only had three, uh, uh, maybe there were two before him. There were two, who did, there was one who didn't last long, then there was Franz was right, all the way up to 1940, and then there was um, Dorothy McIlrace all the way up to the end. Right. And so here's the thing about uh, uh, Farnsworth Wright is that he was a very serious editor. <laughs> and if even for his authors that were very popular and very, uh, you know, regular voices, whether it was Robert E. Howard, whether it was Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, or C.L. Moore, he was very willing to reject their stories if he didn't like them. And so he had, a, for example, he rejected At the Mountains of Madness for, you know, very famously. Um, and a lot of these stories ended up going to Astounding. Um, and so uh, C.L. Moore very quickly established herself writing for Astounding Science Fiction as well. So it wasn't that she was in the stable at Weird Tales and she was one of the more popular writers at Weird Tales, but, um, but she was not uh, exclusive there. So. And of course, she eventually defected completely to Astounding, along with Henry Kuttner. Right. And because uh, Astounding paid a lot better than Weird Tales, and they actually did pay promptly. <laughs> yeah, right. And her most famous story and character probably... Now, Chamblot is a story about Northwest Smith, and we'll get more into him when we get into the story, but her most famous character was um, the... Uh, Jar- the I'm gonna always say yeah, of, of jury <laughs> stories. Yep, there Greg's holding it up for those mm-hmm. on YouTube. And uh yeah, and Jarell Joris. This is my copy. Yeah, probably the most famous story of those is the Black God's Kiss, which is also collected recently in The Future is Female, but it's collected all over the place. 
And uh, these stories are very uh, Robert E. Howard, very swordswoman adventure type stories. They're great. They're <laughs> really, really good. Um, uh, I personally like the Northwest Smith stories a little bit more because I like the space rogue thing a little bit more. But um, and those in this collection, uh, Northwest of Earth, which from the Golden Age Masterworks that I recently read, I picked up at Powell's and I was really impressed. Powell's had these new on the shelf, like a stack of them oh. uh, when I was in Portland. Um, and for $6.98, by the way, was the cost. And they had a stack of these on the shelf. And so I was really impressed um, that they were carrying CL Moore um, in this book. It wasn't just like a random used book that was in there. They were very clearly ordered and on the shelf. And I appreciated that. Uh, Black God's Kiss is probably her most famous one and was the one that was most popular in Weird Tales, from, from what I could tell. It was the second most popular story. It was the most popular story of that year and the second most popular in all of Hansworth's right, right era. The most popular one is The Three Mark Pennies by Mary Elizabeth Councilman, who, which is a great great horror ghost story, which is by, by also a woman writer who sadly sort of forgotten these days. But um, she was more popular in her lifetime, lifetime than Robert E. Howard or, mm. or Clark Ashton Smith or H.P. Lovecraft, who were all writing at the same time and often. Also, um, Black God's Kiss beat out um, the excellent Conan story, People of the Black Circle, for the best story of that issue, which wow. is quite a few. I mean, I love both of them. They're both great stories. As I recall, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure Black God's Kiss was probably the first C.L. Moore story I read as a teen. And I think before I encountered Chamblot even, and I think I'm pretty sure I read it in one of the original Flashing Swords anthologies edited by Lynn Carter. And I, re I remember reading that, you know, impressing me way back then. It was definitely the first one by her I read because I had the ace, ace edition that you just held up. Yeah, that right. was my original C.L. Moore edition. edition. Right. I had the Zero of Jory Ace edition with the same cover that you just held up. Unfortunately, I gave it away. It's quite, it's worth quite a bit right now. I gave it away when I got the Fantasy Masterworks, which has CL, which has the Zero of Jory and Northwest Smith, because I, the Northwest Smith stories were very hard to come by in the 1990s, 80s, 90s. So I was glad to get it and gave my original original Zero of Glory copy away to a friend from university, who I hope really, really enjoyed them. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the, the October 1934 issue of Weird Tales, so that would have been a year, 11 months after she published Chamblot, she published- And there were two other, I think there were at least two other, two or three other Northwest Smith story in between. Yeah, and- so she was um, uh, quite prolific at the time. And they, paid her pretty well for the era she got a hundred bucks for Chamblot mm. uh, for the first first one which is a lot of money for that era I uh, think it was, was really it was a, it was I think more than she got at the bank bank perma bank in a whole month or something like that yeah you can see why she would want to protect her ability to write these stories on the side and I, I, I'm just speculating here but beside the issue of you know you know payments and benefits and hours, I can't imagine that if you're working at a bank, they would probably not look 
you know, nicely because banks are supposed to be staid and respectful. Oh, yes. Pillars <laughs> of society and maybe not selling lurid horror and sort of sorcery stories to. <laughs> right. You know, also, um, the Tales covers. is quite lurid yeah. for the pulp era. I mean, look at the covers. Weird yeah, Tales exactly. is a, was a lurid magazine. And uh, the stories which we'll get into are also, well, there's obviously sex in those stories. Uh, stories quite frank for the era. Yes. And Probably not uh, something the bank would want to be associated now, with. Uh, even today, I think banks would probably not like it if you if you probably, I mean, we still have these stories of, of teachers getting fired because they wrote a romance novel or an erotic romance or something like that. Yeah. This still happens today. Yeah. Um, well, uh, the, in the October 34 issue of Weird Tales, um, it was also subtitled The Weirdest Story Ever Told, Black God's <laughs> Kiss was, um, which is interesting because in a lot of ways, I, I kind of think Chamblot is a little bit weirder, but, uh, you know, they're both pretty weird. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that happened out of uh, C.L. Moore writing for Weird Tales is she got a fan letter addressed to uh, dear Mr. Moore, uh, from one, uh, Henry Kuttner, um, who was also writing science fiction in the era, very good science fiction. Um, and, uh, they developed a friendship on, uh, I was about to say, I online, think it was Lovecraft but... who introduced them. I think Love, uh, Kuttner was a pen pal of Lovecraft because everybody was a pen pal of Lovecraft. And <laughs> Right. Lovecraft told him to write to to write to C.L. Moore, and um, Kuttner did, and kind of didn't didn't under, didn't get that Lovecraft little actually let Lovecraft actually said something like write to Cassie Moore, but uh, Kuttner didn't get that she was a woman, even though it was not unknown at the time. <laughs> right, and <laughs> uh, so they uh, became friends, and uh, I was about to say online, but of course uh, <laughs> through letters. <laughs> Um, uh, and uh, started a longest relationship at the beginning and then eventually uh, were married and uh, became writing partners as well. Um, and I have a really cute picture of them uh, writing together. As it loads here for those that are watching on YouTube. Uh, that's them uh, together in the early days at the typewriter. And it is said um, that they would be able to stop mid-sentence paragraph and pick up where the other one left off. And they really did blend a really great third voice. I don't really see a lot of cute. I think um, uh, CL Moore, she was really good at collaborating because she collaborated with other people as well, like Forrest Ackerman and uh, other people and she really was great at developing this third voice and their work together is really good it's really sad that um in the 60s and 70s if you look at some of the paperbacks of the books that they wrote together they get republished and it'll be like henry kuttner giant and huge on the on the cover and then in real small letters it'll say with cl moore and uh, yeah, there were a lot of the collaborations were credited solely to kuttner even though and uh, I mean, the, the, the stories about what's his name, Gallagher, this inventor, this inventor who can only invent when he's drunk. Those were yeah. pure cut, Kuttner because C.L. Moore was still alive at the time and could, uh, and could and told them, no, no, I had nothing to do with those stories. Right. And uh, so they, she continued to write on her own as well. Uh, she uh, wrote 
1944, she wrote a really landmark uh, novella called No Woman Born, which is a utopian story that's considered one of her best science fiction stories and considered one of the earliest stories about cyborgs. Um, it's been a long time since I read it, um, but it's funny. I believe that's the first C.L. Moore I ever read, me personally, because I read it collected. Um, in fact, when I kind of rediscovered C.L. Moore through The Future is Female a couple of years ago, I, I had to be like, oh, wait, I have read her before because I had read uh, No No Woman Born in a Collection. That's um, anyway, it's a very, very good story. I read it for the Retro Hugos um, two years ago because it was yeah. a Retro Hugo finalist. It lost out to... Um, to Kill Dozer by Theodor Sturgeon, which is also a very good story, but um, personally, I prefer No Woman Born. Winter Seasons is another really good solo C.L. Moore story from the same era. Right. It's from 1946. She only wrote one novel by herself, and that's Doomsday Morning. I have reviewed it on my blog. It is a very weird and very interesting novel about a post-apocalyptic theater group. Um, mm -hmm. It's It's... It's very anachronistic, out of date, but really cool. <laughs> if you like Isn't such Judgment things. Judgment Night a novel or is it a novella? Judgment, because that was also solo more, I think. Judgment Night. Early yeah, space I opera. believe that's considered a novella, but um, you know, that's that whole thing of like, of Mice and Men is considered a novel, even though it's only a hundred pages. Mm -hmm. Like I, there's, I go I, back I, and forth on that. It is not really, you know, I think of it as a novel, but I see it referred to as a novella. And in fact, when Tor reprinted I Am Legend, we added a bunch of Matheson short stories to the back just to pad it out because it was not the length that modern consumers would expect a novel yeah. to be, you know. A lot of the old novels you know, are 60-page novel for 60 cents are long <laughs> gone, you know. If you're charging $6.99 for a paperback, people want, you know, it to be thicker. Right. And... Um... One of the cool things that 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 Cutner and C.L. Moore did or were a part of was in the early 40s, they were part of the Minyana Society literary like sci-fi group. And they moved out to California um, and they lived in Los Angeles. And in 1940, they were a part of this uh, sci-fi group that included Robert Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard and um, Anthony uh, Boucher. Uh, I'm finally saying it right. I always say Boucher. I know it's Boucher. Um, I've been I, my entire child life calling him Anthony Boucher. Okay. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I call him Boucher. He, I guess, never corrected people, supposedly. Um, but he wrote, and I really recommend this book, Rocket to the Morgue, which, because he was known as a mystery writer too. And he wrote this closed door murder mystery called Rocket to the Morgue about this literary society it's like the sci-fi club has a murder in it and so there's fictionalized versions of the cutners of hubbard and heinlein and it is the only fiction book on my non-fiction sci-fi shelf <laughs> um <laughs> because it's incredible and in fact i'm gonna reread it well i must really get i must really get that one someday because yeah. it sounds really like the sort of thing i should uh, i should love and enjoy I highlighted the shit out of this locked door murder <laughs> mystery for a reason. It's not, it, it's more, it's a history as much of, 
because you have to read between the lines and any Cora, you reading this, you'll be like, oh, that's Hubbard. Oh, that's Highland. That's the Cutners. You'll see it. Um, it's really, really cool. Um, so they were really active and a part of that L.A. community um, before Cutner's death. Uh, Catherine Moore started teaching a class at UC or at USC which she continued teaching after her death. I have tried desperately to like in Indiana has all this archive history about its students and it's, and it's alumni. So I found a lot of stuff about CL Moore in relation to Indiana university for one year. There is nothing online about CL Moore teaching this class at U USC. I cannot find anything. Um, no anecdotes, no people blogging about it, nothing. So apparently it's because um, it's quite possible that some of the students are still alive. So it was in the 1950s. The students, they would be old by now, but uh, yes. they would have been still alive. There might still be some alive. Now, there's a book that was published uh, um, and edited by one Greg Cox um, called I Am Legend that was dedicated to Henry Kuttner. Um, and I am assuming that because of the way that that book is dedicated to Kuttner, that Matheson had a relationship with the Kuttners in the 50s, because that book was written in the 50s. So I'm assuming, you know, he only dedicated the book to Henry Kuttner. So I don't know if he had a really good relationship. Matheson was in, in California too, wasn't he? Wasn't because he was a screenwriter. So he would have been in the yes. same area. Yeah, so he was probably part of the Southern Southern California literary group. He lived in Calabasas. The whole time I knew him, he lived in Calabasas, California. I should qualify, you very nicely gave me credit for being the editor of I Am Legend. I should mention I was, you know, the, the last in a long succession of people. I mean, clearly I did not edit the text. I'm saying you put out it. I was not born when that book was published. But yes, I, I reprinted it at Tor, multiple editions, have written, have plugged it aggressively and worked with Matheson and bringing it back. <laughs> right, 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 right. At my biggest, honestly, my biggest, <laughs> most successful accomplishment I, can, I will brag about is that, you know, I, I, I'm the editor who got that book on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes, you did. As I spent a year wow. negotiating with Warner Brothers to put Will Smith on the cover. Uh, you know, and people laugh, but, oh, that's no, I, it's, I, I have that's a literally the reason it got you know, on the New York like, Times oh my God, I can't believe he must be rolling over in his grave. And trust me, you know, that, you know, people had mixed feelings about the Will Smith movie. That movie, yeah, you know, the book sold phenomenally. It remains the best. Uh, book my copy of I Am Legend is oh. the movie. Is this movie copy? I have this copy on my shelf because and I was so happy to finally find a copy of the book. It sold in Germany, where you can, where they're not easy to find. It, it sold. So, yeah, this is a book that was published in 1954. It sold that. That book sold like hundreds and thousands of copies, and not just mercenarily, but it means hundreds and thousands of new readers discover Richard Matheson because. Yes, I put because I was ta quote tacky enough to put you know Will Smith on the cover and do a movie tie-in edition, and honestly it was funny. I was yelling, "Oh my God, they, you know they ruined the book!" And poor Richard Matheson. Um, I saw Royal. I have seen Richard Matheson's royalty statements on those books. Trust me, <laughs> you know he had no complaints. You know, um, wow, we we were that that that's still probably the best-selling book I've ever edited. Yeah, like I said, I said some. I like Richard Matheson, but um, the books were, but uh, lots of old science fiction 
was not easy to find in, in at all. And in Germany, it was even more difficult. But this I found at the at a regular bookstore. I found it in a Talia shop and of course took it home. And yes, I was like, okay, it has a it has Will Smith on the cover, but who cares? It's the exact it's a text from the 1950s. Who cares if there's Will Smith? And there could be worse people than Will Smith on the cover. I will not hijack this discussion to preach the gospel of movie tie-in editions, but no, there were books um What Dreams May Come was out of print before the Robin Williams movie came along. My edition of the first Sorrow book is a movie tie-in edition to the 1997 Sorrow movie, which was pretty good actually, though it has nothing to do with the story. But this is a way, movie tie-in editions often are the way you get to read those old stories. And that's great. Even if the cover is a bit weird, who cares? The Prophecies was out of print before they made the movie. I put the movie poster on the cover, New York Times bestseller, all these, it's a way of getting the book out to people who have never heard of Richard Matheson or, you know, when they make the Jirel or Jari movie, you know, for God's sakes, you know. I really hope that, they, that we get either Northwest Smith or Jirel or both of them, preferably a miniseries on Netflix or something like that. Yeah. I, I and yes, for whoever, whoever plays the role on the cover, I don't no. really care. And even, honestly, we even have a couple years before, before Jessica out the movie is ready. edition. Our sales of I Am Legend, the regular tour edition with you know the pale faced zombies on the cover, we suddenly our, we, we suddenly had to go into multiple printings the minute the trailer for the movie hit out. We were suddenly wow, you know, never underestimate you know the power of a media tie-in. Yeah, people uh, a lot and, of people don't and, know and that there are books. Uh, the books, you know, there's a lot of things. Uh, um, not in film. Edmund it's, Hamilton. I discovered Edmund Hamilton via the anime adaptation of the Captain Future stories as a kid which i loved and then years later i learned wow there are books and i was like i must get those books i loved those so that anime <laughs> all right no, well to get back no. on on track. yeah sorry sorry we're sort of yeah, digressing we here on. I, but it's it, really interesting what greg has to say here <laughs> i know we, we talked a lot about it in the richard matheson episode so which, which i, I recommend to. now yeah, i must listen to that one it's your fault you mentioned i am legend okay uh, yes <laughs> now uh yes but i do think that cutner and uh, um, and Matheson were friends, obviously dedicated to him, but I think he was part of that whole writing community. Um, I wish if there's anybody out there who took any of CL Moore's classes, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, so I, you know, that's something that I would like to know more about. Um, and I don't know, I haven't looked into where her papers are stored, if she stored them at USC or not. That's uh, a thing that I'm probably going to be looking into soon. Um, I'm currently doing DC Fontana research, so I got to do that for a little while um, before I can get into that, um, which by the way, Greg, you and I need to talk about at some point. Um, uh, anywho, back to CL Moore. Um, so when Kuttner died in 58, she pretty much retired from writing um, after she did a few, she did four years of screenwriting she wrote for Maverick and the Alaskans and 77 Sunset Strip, the de detective series, but that's pretty uh, much it. I have actually seen 77 Sunset Strip because it was really popular in Germany because it had a really good dub, but I've never, but I've never know, I never knowingly seen one of her episodes. And I suppose the name would have, I think she used Catherine Kuttner, but the name pro probably would have rang a bell at the time when I watched them. Yeah, she was writing as Catherine uh, Kuttner uh screenwriting so um yeah i don't 
know if I can sit through an episode of Maverick, but maybe if I can find the one that she wrote, I'll, I'll give it a spin. Um, it's interesting because when you look into these things, like I just randomly found like a radio serial that Philip K. Dick wrote in the 50s. And I didn't even know that it existed until like last week. And um, it's, it's just funny when you find some of these things and like someone has put them on YouTube. It's like just the weirdest thing. Um, we recently but... started watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents late night on MeTV. And it's so funny, you get to the end sometimes and oh, written by Harlan Nelson. Oh, written by Robert Block, written by, yeah, based on a story by- Lots of these still, lots of these. I mean, uh, well, Richard Matheson, I probably discovered him first as a screenwriter before I actually read anything by him. And by the way, one of the things I'm getting at the UCLA archive tomorrow, I'm literally going tomorrow, is um, there are lots of treatments by science fiction writers that never got produced, including Phil Philip Jose Farmer and Robert Checkley and A.E. Von Vogt. And they're all sitting there at UCLA and I will have them tomorrow in my greedy paws. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and um, you know, so that... It's cool that the science fiction writers were out there working. That's one of the things is in that era, like your Matheson's, your George Clayton Johnson's, like they were getting um, uh, work um, and selling treatments, even if they weren't being made, but some of them were writing for the Twilight Zone. They were right. They were getting work doing this. So that that whole community, I think, talked a lot. All right. Um, as far as the history goes, that's she won some Lifetime Achievement Awards in the 80s. She kind of came out of retirement for a little bit before her death in 1987. Um, not to write, but she came to a few conventions and received these awards. There was rumors that she was working on a fantasy novel, um, but that didn't really come to fruition. And with that... She also had dementia towards the end. She suffered from dementia, which is also why she didn't get the... She would have been the first uh, woman grandmaster of the of Sifra, but um, her husband, her second husband, declined the honor because he was um, already suffering from dementia. The second husband, who gets a lot of bad bad rap, which I'm not sure he deserves uh, deserves. Um, yeah, and I think we'll talk about him later <laughs> if we do. Yeah, he 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 just didn't want. Her. He thought she would be confused and it would be embarrassing. Yes, I I, and I don't I, I understand think she that. was unhappy with the second husband. Husband, yes, she stopped writing, but she, uh, but uh, maybe she just didn't want to write anymore because it reminded her of of Kutnauer. Maybe because uh, almost thirty years had been more than twenty years of writing had been enough for her. People retire all the time, so uh, I, yeah. I think the guy, the second husband, probably gets a bad rap for for a lot of uh, not yeah. so good. Do you, do you really think? That C.L. Moore would have stopped writing because a second husband told her to. No, I don't no. think so. I don't no. think so. No so way. She probably she was she was she done. She was done, to. and uh, then she uh, so she retired and uh, lived the rest of her life. Still continued teaching, and um, she apparently was happy with this with this uh, second husband. Yeah, yeah, it seems so. All right, so let's look at the cover of the Weird Tales that uh, this was the cover of November 1933 Weird Tales that Shamblo was in. Um, for those of you on YouTube, I'm sorry for the audio listeners. This this is one that might be a good one to, to, to watch on YouTube. Yeah. Um, it's a, a very typical Margaret Brandes cover of the era and oddly enough doesn't seem to fit, to, doesn't seem to be for any specific story. It's right. not for Shamblo at any rate. 
Chamblot was the opening story of the issue. And I thumbed through the issue on the Internet Archives. And this is what the first page looked like Ooh. for Chamblot. <laughs> Have you seen this before, Greg? I've not, I haven't seen that art before. Yeah. Um, let's let's scroll in a little bit. Uh, again, weird tales giving away the, the big twist on the opening page. Not the first <laughs> time this happened to uh, C.L. Moore or anybody. I mean, they now, give away the, the she... twist of Black God's Kiss 2 on the opening page. Yeah, because she did get this does give away the twist. So my question was, did did she want to write this introduction at the beginning? Or do you think Weird Tales kind of pushed this on her? This man has conquered space before or the mention of uh, Medusa in, in the introduction. Um, yeah, we're getting into spoilers now. So if you haven't read the story, pause, go read the story. Um, yes, the picture kind of gives away the ending a little bit too. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Cora? As you've researched and read a lot of the weird tales of this era. Uh, do you think that this was kind of pushed on her give, mentioning the Gorgon and or the Medusa thing um, in the beginning? Might have, but I mean, we have to, especially with C.L. Moore and both Moore and Katna, there's a lot of literary and mythological, mythological illusions in their story. Even, especially in this 40 stories, there's a lot of stuff I actually have to look up because it's no longer as well remembered as it used to be. But Medusa is, of course, it's a very famous myth, but it, and uh, Weird Tales was more literary than most of the pulp magazines. So I'm not, I actually like this, Man Has Conquered Space Before intro. It's also very weird tales of uh, cycles of civilization, which collapse and, uh, and uh, then return, return. So the Medusa thing is actually so kind of obvious that I'm not sure if really Weird Tales readers in the 1930s needed to be told what a Medusa is. I think they probably would have known. Right. And uh, personally, I, I am a fan of that introduction. I do like the weird tales feel to it. And like we talked about earlier that the story just really captures the, the weird tales vibe right from the beginning, like has that cosmic feel and the cycle thing too. Also, um, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but whenever I think of these, the, the Northwest Smith stories or the Lee Brackett stories, I don't really think of them as futuristic sci-fi. I think of them as being like, kind of this ancient out of time, like when the solar well, there's system- There's a reason we call these stories thought and planet these days. So um, there's yeah. not a lot of thoughts in Ciel Moore. Lee Brackett is more thought and planet. Ciel Moore is more weird, more weird fiction space. I think which is also why a lot of people have problems with her because she's not what you expect. You expect when you hear like, oh, she had this medieval sword woman, she had this space rogue, early space rogue, uh, Han Solo, Malcolm Reynolds type character, you expect a lot of action and that's not what you get with C.L. Moore. You get a dreamlike atmosphere, you get psychedelic experiences, which is, I think, which always surprises people because they don't expect, because you don't expect it. If you've read Weird Tales, of course, you expect a bit more of it, but if you come into them, I remember the first time I read Northwest Smith, I was like, okay, but didn't they say this would be like a kind of Han Solo type character? This is uh, not really that sort of story, but it's great. <laughs> Greg? On paper, I think, you know, her, the setups always sort of lend themselves to sort of swashbuckling adventure, but that's neither Shamblow or in fact, even the Jirel stories are that. And even, no, they're, even, they're not. They're wonderful, the but you have to accept them for what they are. They're all very obsessive fever dream stories. 
for all that Jairel has this reputation as being the proto Red Sonia barbarian swordswoman, which she is, there's actually very little swashbuckling. It's mostly her, you know, being tossed into these weird nightmarish dreamscapes and being attacked on an emotional level. And you know, Chamblo is, oh, he's a, he's a, you know, roguish space adventurer. But no, the story is this weird, obsessive, emotional fever dream story with very little in the way of, you know, blasters and, you know, heroics. Well, there are guns and ray guns, so he guns but takes yes. care of all situations. But, indeed, but Smith must... never uses his. Well, oh yes, he fires at the at the floor once to drive uh, off the yeah, yeah, But he, the only guy who actually shoots someone with his gun is his pal Jarl. So we need more towards honestly horror stories. They're more, you know, you know, Chamblo is more akin, you know, sort of oddly enough, you know, Edgar Allan Poe than Buck Rogers, you know. Yeah, even though it, it's Buck a horror. Rogers, it's a science fiction horror. Buck Rogers story. setting, you know, they're all sort of again Lovecraft Poe. The vibe you get is very rich and sort of obsessive and you know nightmarish and I actually had the experience I'll make a comment that I read the all the Jirel stories recently again just helped get me through the pandemic. I, I will make the diagnosis that they're good that I would not read them all back to back because they're all no. kind of have the same I think with this early very all over the place they, they all have her kind of thrust into some weird phantasmagoric thing and running into weird metaphorical representations of depression and angst. And, you know, they're all very good and very deep and immersive and great, but they all read in one sitting, they all start to read yeah. the same. Oh, this is Black God's Kiss again, again. Yeah. Yeah. The only C.L. Moore stories should be spaced out. If you also yeah. the Northwest Smith ones, not don't read. And, this goes actually for a lot of weird tales also. Don't read too many of them one after another. Exactly. Whether it's Lovecraft or Clark Smith or C.L. Moore. The only one I can actually read several ones in a row is uh, Robert E. Howard. But then um, but then probably it's also better to switch around, have a Conan and then maybe something, and then maybe uh, Solomon Kane and then maybe something completely different like Sailor Steve Costigan. But yeah. I would agree that um, when I read this, like when I started it, I was like, oh God, this is incredible. This is great. And then after a while, I was like, they do kind of have to be broken up a little bit. Um, and, and I think that's really good advice, Greg. Also, they were broken up. I mean, they, yeah, they were, were broken up. They they were you were not meant to read those one after another. No, so yeah. you had to wait uh, for one or two first couple of months until the next one came out. <laughs> Right, that's how they were intended to be. And you were also yeah. supposed to mix them in with uh, Robert E. Howard or Lovecraft, or of course, the a twin story, <laughs> if you can, can get through that one. One flavor among many, not to sit down and just yeah. eat a big bowl of salsa. <laughs> um, well, and I will say that uh, later in life, one of the other LA writers that C.L. Moore uh, became very good friends with was Lee Brackett, and they had. Uh, a friendship and um you know her eric stark character is very similar uh to northwest smith and a lot of the settings in this kind of like and ancient... of course black amazon of mars the eric lon stark story is pretty much a rewrite of uh of um black god's kiss only with a happier ending and written from the guy's perspective from the man's perspective right <laughs> And, uh, you know, they had a really great relationship, but, uh, and, and a lot of these stories, 
Um, I, I, they kind of have like a similar vibe and feeling of, I, now I know CL Moore wrote this as the future when she was writing it in 1933. I think it is kind of better now to look at these stories as like kind of out of place in like another era, the solar system when, when, you know, uh, perhaps like these planets had different epochs and like you know that's I kind of... view them much like i view a lot of these pulp science fiction stories set on mars and venus and it's always the same quite, the solar system is quite similar in the stories but it's a i view it as a parallel reality and i have less problems reading those of because uh, it's all nonsense i know that uh, the solar system doesn't work mars doesn't look like that venus doesn't look like that mercury is not tidally locked doesn't have a twilight belt and there are no prisons on the moon I know what it's, it's uh, but I can read it as a sort of alternate reality. But when I try to read some of the bad stories in Astounding, and there were some really bad ones in Astounding, which are supposedly hard science fiction, those are usually just, oh, please, please. Be. They're more dated than those uh, stories which were pretty much pure fantasy even back then. These were weird tales. I don't think anybody came to real tales expecting, you know, rigorously scientific hard SF. <laughs> no, you know. they did it, publish a lot of us. You know, accurate <laughs> astronomy fiction, it's called. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> weird, creepy, Medusa, vampire women on Mars. Okay, you know. All right, let, let, let's drill down a little bit on Northwest Smith, uh, whose name is known and respected in every dive and wild outpost on a dozen wild planets. Was a cautious man despite his reputation. He set his back against the wall and gripped his pistol and heard the rising shout coming nearer and nearer. Okay, so that's... that's kind of how he gets introduced as a character yes he gets described all the time as the space rogue as the proto han solo um and he's almost more a proto indiana jones really than, than indiana jones of course also came he came from these these stories i mean there's, there are more Indiana Jones prototypes in lee brackett stories as lee brackett has a lot of space archaeologists who are basically indiana jones in space but right. um and they came from the same mold. We know Lucas Redley bracket and he hired her. Yeah, of course, he read her. And he yeah. probably, I'm pretty sure, probably read Moore too because um, the stories were in print in his lifetime. Yeah. Um, Greg, what do you think about Northwest Smith as a character? You know, I, I'll make a confession here. I suspect, I fear that Chamblow may be actually the only story I've read. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I, I'm a vampire guy, so I come to Chambolo via vampire fiction. It, you know, it, I've seen it in vampire collections. I put it in one of my vampire anthologies. So I, I come to it not as a, you know, oh, pulp adventure blasters thing, or as a Northwest Smith story. I come to it as a one of the classic early science fiction vampire stories, which is the context, you know, I have experienced it, and it's the context in which. Well, he's kind I, I of. I haven't actually read any of the other Northwest Smith stories. I I know Chamblow because he collected it. Really yeah, which is one of the reasons why. Really I, vampire I, I, stories, you know, but. Yeah. Um, well, first off, uh, he. Uh, we should say to to not just you, but to to everyone who because I put out to read this story before this episode, but this collection is all the Northwest Smith stories. And um, there is a crossover story with Jarell of Jory, um, which is a very weird one. Um, there's a couple that she wrote here with Kuttner, and there's one she wrote uh, with Forrest J. Ackerman, which is really weird. <laughs> um, but 
he basically is a monster hunter archaeologist type character he ends up he gets all these jobs that always end up you know uh involving kind of a monster of the week type of thing in the story and there's usually the monster is often a beautiful woman or the stories usually involve a beautiful woman yeah and some kind of cosmic angle where yeah yeah, yeah. So, it's a, as if Kisula wasn't could hire could uh, was an attractive woman that's what a lot of these stories are like yeah and uh but back to Shamblo um one of my you know kind of one of the the senses or, or paragraphs that really um sold me on the story right away is on the second page which was it was a motley crowd earthmen and martians and a sprinkling of venetian swamp women strange and nameless denizens of unnamed planets a typical lacadaral mob i think i'm not sure if i'm saying lacadaral correctly the the name of the city on mars um i love the just pulpy oh yeah just um like ridiculousness of like the venetian swamp women and all that and so when i read this uh because i read i read this collection recently i read chamblow before collected um it's been collected many 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 times more than um, i think way more than 30 times and that was uh, i think a while ago because i actually i tried counting it but uh, there was some but it was at least more in more than 30 there were more than 30 reprints and um some of you will come to this from listening to the audio version read by co moore um which i am going to be sharing widely before this episode comes out um and that version uh she edits the quite a bit she she cuts parts um she changes wordings a little bit like quipped is changed to said and things like that and uh there's a whole paragraph she cut and i highlighted it because i followed along listening to it and uh it was he had no intention of using that heat beam he knew by now that they would kill him unless he started the gunplay himself he did not mean to give up his life for any girl alive, but a severe mauling he expected. He braced himself instinctively as the mob weaved in within himself or within itself. She cut that whole paragraph, <laughs> right? When uh, reading it for the uh, audio version, or I'm assuming she did, or I don't know if she did for later editions, but this edition, which is fair. Um, what My edition think? also definitely has that paragraph. Yeah, um, this would be, um, I, this is 2019, this edition, the, yeah. the Golden Works. Like I said, I have the, the Fantasy Masterworks edition from the UK, and that's, let me check what the, when it was actually printed. It's fairly, where is it? Yeah, so she, I, I found it interesting that she, because that version was recorded in 2002, the, so it's 20 years old now. Wow, that's a, yeah, so that version where she read it was a part of a series of classic tales that were recorded for a, a, a series of records in the 60s. And um, so, I mean, she did that recording in the 60s, right? So, was there, was there possibly a time limit? Because I do know that there was an era in the audio history of audiobooks where you actually, these days you can read unabridged books because the technology yeah. just... Yeah, I have I no have way of knowing. Yeah, you have to. There was a limit. 
Um, yeah, if it was on tape be... or on a record, then there was a limit because records only uh, records and tapes have, have time limits. Minutes or something that had to, you know, yeah. You know. So she probably cut for that reason, but the changing of like the little things like the quips and things like that, I think she did that. I didn't think she was doing that in the moment, but I don't know. Uh, I think it might have been simply that it was a pronunciation issue or something or reading issues because when you read something aloud, sometimes you find, okay, this is kind of. Yeah. Uh, of clumsy, let's change this. And if you don't read it aloud, it would go through. And yeah. I say any honestly, any author going back and looking at a story they is going to feel that way. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> going to end up wanting to tinker with it a little bit. I, yes. I, 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 I recently donated an old story I wrote in the '80s to a Kickstarter thing, and I actually had to retype the story because yes, the story was written on a typewriter back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm that old. And, you know, I had to find it. I'll, I'll retype the story and you have a digital file. And yeah, I, I didn't go nuts. It wasn't like my old 15 year old um, fan fiction where I really had to do some rewriting. Um, I, I, I just, I'm good. but yeah, occasionally, oh, well, that's, I was a bit, that, that was a bit wordy. Okay, I, okay, that, okay, I don't need that adverb. Yeah, you, you do that, it's you normal. Know, <laughs> And is pulpy as this? I didn't go nuts because I was just quickly retyping the story so I could we could give it as a free bonus for a Kickstarter. But yeah, I occasionally I might, oh, I don't need I get might get rid of some said book isms or something that seemed really cool to me, you know, when I was a young writer in 1982. You know, um I, I, I yeah. think anyone's gonna be like, oh, I can clean up that sentence. That's that's kind of a clumsy <laughs> sentence, you know. Oh boy, I really loved ad adjective adverbs last night. How, gee, how many adjectives could I cry into one sentence? Maybe I'll just tone down the purple clothes a little bit, you know. Well, even for this being one of her earliest stories, and I know you already said this, Cora, the writing is really good. Um, yeah, this. this is her first, you know, professional sale. Professional sale that she just kind of bam, you know, kind of. And I. Know. Um, I'm going to read here this part. Uh, Chamblot, vaguely of French origin, it must be, and strange enough to hear it on, from the lips of Venetian and Martian drylanders, but it was their use that puzzled him more. We never let those things live, the ex-patrolman said. So there's this whole scene where, you know, he's, that he sees how afraid everyone is of her, but he takes her, takes her in and um, one of the things that's really cool about this story is how alien and strange she is and the great descriptions of how inhuman Shamblo is. Um, but at the same time, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wee bit horny too, uh, which, is, which is really weird. Uh, and, and I think is one of the things that's kind of interesting dynamic that's at play in the story. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but like, um it's that's the lurid nature i that's a better word lurid than horny uh but lurid and alien at the same time it's a really interesting dynamic that she's able to it's pull a off quite a, it's a really uh, it's for the era it's a very um erotic story for the era it's i mean we're talking about the early 30s where it's not, but even the spicy pulps were not really that that erotic they have this reputation and the lurid covers but the contents uh, were not that not nearly as erotic as you assume, and this is about as this is really. I mean, the, it culminates in what is basically a, a two-page uh, tent drug-fueled tentacle sex scene, which is uh, yeah. 
that would be difficult to get past an editor even today. <laughs> basically, for all that, you know, oh, he's supposed to be this Indiana Jones character. No, this is a story about a guy who gets addicted to tentacle yeah. porn, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, he falls for, for the, he for, of course. It's um, a horror story, you know. It's a horror story. And of course, uh, you immediately get, I, I immediately felt sympathy for this, uh, for the Chamblow, the, the running, the girl who's afraid and who's chased down by a mob because you think of witch hunts, of, uh, of lynch mobs and that sort of thing. And you have immediately have sympathy for her. For her, and um, of course, you have sympathy for Smith for protecting her. Except that, yes, in this case, the mob was, let's say, it not wrong. Right. Um, also, one thing we should probably mention is that Chamblow is he's described as brown skinned throughout. So she's a, so she's a, well, she's actually she's an alien, but he's described as brown skinned. And it's not in this story, but in other stories, um, Northwest Smith is also described as brown skinned. So he's probably. Um, so he's probably a person of color. I think there's one story where he lovingly describes his body and every single scar on it, and he has a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Them and yeah, so I remember that one, yeah. Yeah, it's quite it's in it's quite interesting because um, most because we have this assumption that that all that early science fiction and fantasy was Lily White, and it usually wasn't. Yeah, Lee Brackett uh, definitely. Uh, yeah, Lee Brackett, of course, had people of color in her books. Yeah. Um, one little uh, world building detail that um, I really liked on page eight of this version of Chamblow. Um, he des- she describes the uh, Lacadaral raw camp town that it was in those days. I love that she said in those days because I think that little detail um, yeah. gives gives it this like. Like, oh, I'm telling you this story from back in, you know, this grand old time. It has this, uh, this old timey, a long, a long time ago in a galaxy, or in this case, on a Mars far away. Yeah. But As uh, you can see, I also have I... the idea of this is a frontier town, like maybe yeah. in the US. And nowadays it's, and then it's probably grown up and become a, become a big city nowadays in the later times. Yeah. And it gives the sense that we're hearing this, this, almost mythic tale of what Northwest- A rougher, less civilized era, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, I, I did a lot of highlighting of things early er, um, early on in the story, but uh, I skipped a bit. Um, and when we get to the part that you, <laughs> the tentacle parts, um, I just think that the writing here is just incredible. Um, and, um, and this conflict and knowledge, this mingling of rapture and revulsion, all took place in the flashing of a moment while the scarlet worms coiled and crawled upon him, sending deep obscene terror tremors that of that infinite pleasure into every atom that made up Smith. And he could not stir in the slimy, ecstatic embrace. And a weakness was flooding that grew deeper after each succeeding wave of intense delight and the traitor in his soul strengthened and drowned out the revulsion, something within him ceased to struggle as he sank wholly into a blazing darkness that was oblivion to all else, that devouring rapture. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> One <laughs> of the best described orgasms in fiction and probably in all of literature. <laughs> yeah. What was that, Greg? Somehow the bank didn't want to be associated with these slimy, sticky. Yeah, obviously not. <laughs> right. I um, suppose if you work for a bank, even today, they wouldn't be too thrilled if you wrote uh, if you wrote orgasmic tentacle sex scenes. 
<laughs> right. Um, and yeah, and that I had the experience of, because when I was reading this, you know, I, like I said, I, I picked up this copy when I was on my trip to Portland in, in, in June at Powell's. And um, I started, uh, you know, reading this recently, but I was very, it was very clear in my mind that this was 1933 that she's writing this. This, this is seven or, or well, like eight, six, eight years before World War II started, you know, and you're writing this kind of intense stuff. Like it's easy to forget that yeah. people were writing stuff like this, that, that this stuff existed in that era because we had this idea that every- We assume we wouldn't have get that sort of thing until the 1960s. This, uh, yeah. this, uh, you would, if you just gave this paragraph to someone who doesn't know the story, they would probably, and but who knows a bit about science fiction history, they would think it's probably a new wave story from the 1960s. Only yeah, that it's 30 years older. Maybe, or somebody, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially if you're reading like some of the cleaner stuff that existed in like, astounding and and um and amazing and and like uh, by the know. time they is a cutner cl moore and henry cutner wrote for astounding there are the sex scenes are largely gone there is no because uh, there is uh, the hint of sex and mentions of sex in the in all of her weird tales in most of her weird tales stories also in the girl stories Jirel yeah. is pretty much, oh, I'm not a wilting virgin, and uh, but yeah, if you if you force a kiss on me, I'm going to to avenge myself and kill you, which he does. But um, the, I was surprised reading the, the astounding stories, or some of them that Katna Moore did, they were very, very good, but um, the, sec the sexual element meant, and of the weird tale stories is completely missing, probably because they wouldn't have gotten that past... Um, John W. Campbell and his assistant Kate Tarrant. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know Campbell definitely was uh, more worried about uh, about what his parent company was going to do to him on that stuff. So, uh, and that was definitely like a thing he was dealing with. Um, now, as far as um, getting to um, now. Now, Greg, you collected this in a collection of vampire stories, but a lot of people might not necessarily think of this automatically as a vampire story, but it very clearly is because, um, as it says towards the end of the story, this this that Chamblou is 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 taking your life force and and, and is sucking it out of you, and um, so it's an early version of that kind of space vampire thing that Colin Wilson would eventually do and would eventually become life force. Um, so you know, which but... also wrote a space vampire story. Greg probably what's it called? The Veil of Estrella. Probably Greg probably collected that one. I don't know if you if you did. <laughs> but uh, but which, did. which story are you talking about? I'm the sorry. Veil of um, I think Estrella. Estrella. It's from 1944. It was a Lee Brackett space vampire story. Yes, that one flew under my radar. Yeah. Oh, oh it did. Wow. but it's a really good one. It's a really really good one. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> It, it's, it's a fairly little known for some reason. Yeah, like I said, I actually wrote a book on the history of vampire literature. And yeah, I confess that one flew under, under my radar, you know, so. Oh, well, uh, we it's also both not, have an It's not now, been collected a lot. It it's one of the, the rarer ones. I think when I read it, I had to resort to, a, to an actual scan of the actual pulp magazine. Well, I, I, it was, I, in, it was from 1944. From Weird Tales. I, I, yeah, I relied very heavily on reprint anthologies and such i wasn't 
I think it, it hasn't been reprinted. I know it was not easy to find. I couldn't find a reprint. anthologies I could find reprinting all the old stories and such. Well, one thing that's especially happened in the last couple of years is now anytime you're talking about these, these era of pulp magazines is that Internet Archive has them all now. So, you, you, you know, like, yes, I read Who Goes There for this series in, in a book, but I was able to go back and, and look at the original Astounding that it it's was in. really important. To, it's really good to do that, I think, if you can. And yeah. you can. Everybody can. It's even if you don't want to read them, but it's interesting to see the environment, to see the ads, to see the interior art. And if you check back a few issues later, then you get the letters and the reactions. Yes, <laughs> yes which is really cool, too. And that's, you know, like the first evidence that we have of Walter Tevis um, doing anything is like a letter he wrote to startling stories you know when he was like 12 years old and it's like here's the author of queen's gambit writing to startling stories when he's 12 it's it's <laughs> yeah. fucking cool you have, this, uh, you have a lot of these you suddenly find a lot of famous names even before they were famous a 14 yeah. year old virginia kid wrote a letter to their tales uh tales uh, telling them how much he loved black god's kiss right <laughs> wow yeah, well, you know, we found when we did our tour of all of Phil K. Dick's houses in Berkeley, we found a house that he lived in from 1942 to 44 only because Jesse from SFF Audio found a letter in an amazing stories from 1943 from Philip K. Dick that had a return address. And of all the Dick scholars, no one had known where he lived during those two years and hadn't found that house. And we went to that house just because of that letter, right? That Jesse found and tweeted at I mean, me. It's amazing that the house is still standing many times. I, I remember all, looking all up, the houses he lived in are still standing. Yeah, I remember, for, remember looking, finding an address of on an old letter of Heinlein's and saying, okay, now I'm going to look that up on Google Street View. It was somewhere in the Hollywood Hills and the house still stands. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, the funny thing was the neighbor was coming out to take out his garbage when we were there. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like he was a dick fan and so when we ah. told him that you know hey phil k dick wow. lived at your neighbor's house <laughs> and he was like no way <laughs> and then uh but the woman had lived there since the 60s and she had no idea uh right and so we were able to tell the neighbor tell her and um you know one of the interesting all the houses were there except for the apartment where he wrote Earthshaker. that building has been knocked down and replaced with a house um, but even the house he lived in when he was eight um, is still there. And because it, his he and his mom moved all over Berkeley, we, we got to experience like, you know, whereas Ursula Le Guin's very rich, very expensive house that she lived in her whole childhood, it's a very big class difference when you, <laughs> when you look at their experience. Uh, anyways, I'm sorry, I could go off on a tangent on that, but back to Chamblow. Um, you know, one of the things about this story is, yes, we talked about how the ending is kind of given away this this thing towards the end with the, um, uh, I suppose you recognize the legend of Medusa. Is There isn't any question that the ancient Greeks knew of them. Does it mean that they uh, there have been civilizations before yours that set out from Earth and explored other planets? Or did one of the Shamblo somehow make its way to Greece 3,000 years ago? And that's kind of a neat twist um with this idea that you know oh you know she's the medusa she's the gorgon she somehow and, inspired the myth yeah 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 exactly and um 
that's before we get to the mental food thing and to the space vampire thing. That's kind of like in the next page, which is uh, the Shambolo uses a mental reach to get mental food. I don't quite know how to put it. Just as a beast eats the bodies of other animals, um, acquires within each meal greater power over the bodies of the rest. So the Shamblo stroking itself up from the life forces of men increases its power over the minds and souls of other men. So it's like, you know, from the vampire sake, oh yeah, okay. So you've got this vampire who, you know, has enthralls people and drains their life force and control, you know, that that's that's a pretty basic vampire. You could draw a line between like Carmilla and you know Chamblo there, you know. Carmilla, which is one of the primordial vampire texts pre-Dracula, you're probably familiar with, but yeah, it starts out is introduced as this vulnerable wayfish young woman who's apparently in danger, but then has this, exerts this mysterious influence. And gee, suddenly poor Laura is slowly draining away as this strange clingy sort of, you know, apparently vulnerable, you know, character, you know. It, and uh, you know, it's quite possible that, um, that uh, C.L. Moore read Carmilla because it's a, it's a famous story that's been reprinted a lot. And we know that she liked reading science fiction, fantasy, horror, so. It's quite, I, I we don't, don't know, know, but it's quite possible that she did read it at some point. I probably own in my possession just in various different vampire anthologies. You know. Also, uh, Camilla has been, there is, a, there is a film adaptation from the silent era, I think. There are probably more than one, but there is one from the silent era. So she may well have, have even, she may have either seen the movie or very likely read the story. Well, and, and we kind of glossed over this, but just, you know, 1933 and she's got ray guns and heat guns. It's, it's kind of cool too. Um, that It's kind of neat thing that that's kind of going on. And, you know, she's imagining the spacefaring future. Um, you know, when we're talking 30 years before Apollo, you know, like um, it, it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, I love anachronistic out of date science fiction. I, and so personally, you know, like John Shirley and I used to get in arguments because he wanted to update his 70s novels. And I kept telling him, no, 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 don't update them. No, the way no. They are. <laughs> I don't like that. Either. I don't. I know some people do, but I, I really don't like these updates. Uh, I don't. I, I mean, I think I, he came I, down I know it's an old end. book. I, I don't think he came down really on the care. end of not doing it. But for a while, like, um, you know, he and I would talk about that all the time because it really bothered him that the Soviet Union was in uh, Transmaniacon, for example like his novel from 1978. I'm gonna be like, no, 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 no. That's what happened. That's what was going on when you wrote it. That should be there. And uh, I, I do believe he came to that conclusion eventually too. But, you know, uh, one of the neat things that, that, that's going on here in this story is this, this, there's the science fiction aspect, there's the horror aspect that there's that that's going on. I guess I should have asked this earlier, Greg, but so you collected this in um, Tomorrow Sucks, right? Which is your space vampire or sci-fi vampire? The thing was, I should mention that this was a collaboration with me and Tony Weisskopf at Bain. And yeah. basically, who built herself as TKF Weisskopf here. And you no, know, Tony basically came to me and said, let's do an anthology of science fiction vampire stories. So yeah, we went through and, you know, 
this was long, you know, we, robot vampires, uh, alien vampires, vampires going into space, vampires versus aliens. You know, besides the, you know, uh, more so we have the Stainless Steel Leech by Roger Zelazny, which was about a robot vampire. We have Pillar of Fire by Ray Bradbury, which is one of the more obscure stories from the Martian Chronicles about horror creatures hiding out on Mars after they've been banished from a sterile earth and, you know, alternate histories where the vampires have taken over the world. But yeah, uh, the, the minute Tony said we need to do a vampire anthology of science fiction vampire stories, it's like, well, okay, you know, we, we, we have to have Chamblot because it's like one of the primordial, you know, science fiction, it, it's literally said it all pulp science fiction setting with a weird vampiric creature. You know. Where did you first read Chamblot? I just, because- I don't know. I I honestly don't, because like I said, possibly, like I said, I, I wrote a book many years previous called The Transylvanian Library, which at the time was a survey of the history of vampire fiction. So surely it probably popped up in, as mentioned, yeah, it's been yeah. widely anthologized. So I, it may, I may have even stumbled onto it while researching the vampire book and looking for old pulp area vampire stories. Uh, I don't, unlike Black God's Kiss, which I remember reading as a teen in Flashing Swords, I don't remember encountering the Chamblot as a kid. I think I may have encountered it in the 80s when I was researching vampire fiction for- Well, yeah, it's funny. I, uh, shout out to uh, Greg from Artifact Books, which is a great used bookstore in Encinitas, California. I was there and he had a paperback of that was C.L. Moore Chamblot was like a collection of Northwest Smith stories that was marketed as Chamblot on the yeah. cover. And it was very delicate. And I, uh, Greg accurately priced it very expensively as he should. And I didn't get it. And then like a month later was when I picked this one up. And, um, but I mean, he still has that if people uh, want that wonderful paperback because it was great uh, looking paperback. But I saw that right before, a couple of weeks before I bought this copy. And I remember I was looking at it and I had not read Shamblow yet, I admittedly. Um, but, you know, my, my experience with, with C.L. Moore before reading this collection of the Northwest Smith stories this summer was, was Jorel Jory. I'd read all of those and I had read Black God's Kiss collected somewhere when I was younger and kind of got reacquainted with her through reading it and reading that same story in the future is female. And then freaking out when I realized in future is female, it said that she was from Indiana and then went <laughs> down, the, down the rabbit hole with that. But by the uh, way, she did know she did know um, Clyde Bell of Bonnie and Clyde fame fame because she wrote it in a she she exchanged letters with uh, Robert E. Howard and Robert E. Howard had a fascination for gangsters and so and CMO told him oh yeah Clyde Bell I know I, I met I knew him he will because they must have been the same age about and they so they, they so apparently she knew <laughs> she knew Clyde Bell of Bonnie and Clyde fame which is definitely an interesting bit of uh, trivia. That is interesting. That's one I did not know. No, that's fascinating. Um, that's another <laughs> thing. Bobby Deary died. That helps to place your realize that she was, in fact, a contemporary of Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. 
No, no, Cora, you've read a bunch of these letters, right? Between between them, you you have collections of them, or uh, I don't them? have a collection of the actual of the letters C.L. Moore wrote to. I've only written some excerpts. I have the I have the complete uh, Lovecraft uh, Howard um, Howard um, correspondence. I have a collection of that, but I don't have the the letters C.L. Moore wrote to uh, okay. wrote to Lovecraft. She wrote to Lovecraft to Howard. She wrote to Robert E. Howard's father. She wrote a very very touching sympathy letter after Howard uh, shot himself. Oh, that's himself. But um, Bobby Deary is probably your guy because he has has all he has he has all of the letters. And if I need a letter quote, then Bobby is usually the person I hit up. Like, okay, where is this? Yeah. Um, uh... Uh, yeah, I got to get Bobby on the podcast sometime. Yeah, Bobby doesn't do podcasts, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. <laughs> For some reason, he doesn't like podcasts. But yeah, if you I, need, ever need a quote from any letter from anybody of your tales, Bobby probably knows it. Right. Well, and, you know, people forget, too, how much, um, you know, letter writing was a different thing. I recently went through a thing where um, in the Ubik outline which i wrote about for for my pkd book there's many references to carol carr uh terry carr's wife and her personality inside because he was basing one of the characters off carol carr and at the time i was like i said to one of the other dick scholars i was like well how did he know carol carr she lived in new york and then uh gil responded by showing me a screenshot of the collected letters and PKD and Carol Carr wrote each other 12 letters in 1964, back and forth. Um, you know, like, that's not a normal thing for us to think about these days. You know, yeah, we, went- we forget how many, how many, how common letters were at the time. And also that this was the only way often to keep in touch with people. So Mina still remember month- lengthy yeah. letters from, from uh, far off relatives and so on arriving when I was a young child. Yeah. Well, you know, they, these letters and, and it's, you know, for the people who collected them, that's, that's great. And so did you said that Lovecraft referred to her as Kathy Moore in, in letters? I think like, he, yeah, he knew at any rate that she was, was a woman. And I think it was Robert Barlow, who was a, the Weird Tales, who was a teenage Weird Tales super fan who wrote to everybody that he wrote to, to C.L. Moore. And that's how she sort of got into contact with Lovecraft and via him with Howard and Kutner and many others. And um, Robert E. Howard was actually, he, he loved the Lyrell of Lori stories and the uh, Lyrell stories. And uh, he sent her the manuscript for the, the for Sword Woman, the Dark Agnes story, which was uh, the, his own, his own sword, his own female sword fighter character who was never published in his lifetime. She was on the stories were only published sometime in the 70s. But uh, he sent her the manuscript and she said, oh, yeah, great, great work. Keep, keep going. But uh, sadly, the stories never sold. Uh, wow! Yeah, but recently, is... she had her own Marvel comic. Believe it or not. Yeah, later she, of course, they all got that. Nowadays, uh, then came about everything Howard ever wrote, and also a lot of his um, his uh, because Howard wrote a lot of strong women characters. I think this is probably also why he liked the Lirel stories because he suddenly saw, oh, there's a market for this sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting that Robert he Howard struggled to sell anything. <laughs> yeah, but um, sometimes it's a, it's a weird it thing. It happens to everybody. If you look right? at the stories he didn't sell. But also because, uh, of course, Lirel, you're talking about Lirel now, no, the unmasking scene in the beginning when you think it's a, it's a male knight and then the helmet comes off and it's a beautiful woman, which is a scene which 
is incredible, which has been imitated dozens of times, often by people who don't know where it comes from. from. Right. Because whenever there's a motorcycle helmet or a spacesuit and it comes off and, oh, it's a woman and you didn't expect it, that's Jirel, that's pretty much the opening scene of the of Black God's Kiss. And um, it's uh, which has been redone. But Robert E. Howard actually had at least two sto two stories, which are earlier, where something similar happens. Oh, some, some character is thought to be a so to be a man, one of them was actually published. It's a crusader story and it's just a throwaway scene where this uh, also where a knight suddenly turns out to be a woman in disguise. And the other is a story which was never, actually the story I just discussed uh, on SFF Audio, which was never published in his lifetime. So apparently he had an, he had an interest in, in female warrior heroines, but had problems selling them or thought like, oh, but I need to have these, uh, these simpering girls that, uh, that occasionally cl that cling to Conan's leg. <laughs> Lag, but uh, and I think the zero story probably encouraged him like, okay, I can I can do this if I want to. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've been going for a while. Um, any last thoughts on CO Moore and Chamblo before we'll get into how people can uh, track down your work? Um, uh, starting with Greg, um, you know, I, this this story is so ahead of its time and such a, such a wonderful thing. Like, I mean, I know from the minute I started talking about CL Moore, you, you brought up how much you love this story. Um, you know, what, how, how do you reflect on this story in the end now? I, I admit I'm kicking myself for not actually rereading it last night. <laughs> but, <laughs> I've read it many times, but not, but no, it, like I said, it, I, I'm really astounded this was her first published story. And again, the more I think about it, I, I kind of like the contrast between, like I said, the sort of pulp Buck Rogers, ray gun, heat gun setting versus this really almost sort of gothic obsessive horror story. Like I said, I, it, it, you know, it's a nice, I love it when John, I actually love it when genres cross over. Some people hate it, you know, put, it, put the chocolate with the peanut butter. Here you've got like, you know, this great sort of pulp science fiction setting you know, you know, on this frontier of Mars and this whole sort of very uh, almost classic vampire story with touches of Greek mythology mixed in. It, 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 it just works perfectly, all those elements coming together to make the story unique, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's real powerful stuff. Plus, just feel more in general, if you read all of her stories, they're very immersive, obsessive, very emotionally driven as opposed to plot driven or, you know, action driven, you know. She's, she's, like I said, I, I, this, this insight came to me while we were talking, there's almost something akin to put more of Poe and Lovecraft into her than, you know, Indiana Jones, you know. Yeah, and I would say, I do want to put it out there to people that um, I wasn't super in love with Doomsday Morning, her novel from the 50s. Like I didn't, but it is a really weird piece of work in a cool way. Um, I'm intrigued by your description of it, yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it has, I think there's a lot of theater references I didn't get, but I think people who maybe like were a part of theater back in the day, maybe- Moore would... and Kuttner have a lot of references to um, literature, theater, and so on in their collaborative stories, which I had to look up simply because in a lot of times those poems, plays, novels simply aren't remembered anymore. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of stuff that went over my head, you know, that if you were like a theater kid in the 40s or 50s or whatever, like, 
because I think she was really because the the idea of the story is, is that they were kind of, it's kind of like a little bit like postman David Brin in the sense of now I'm remember I read this a couple of years ago so I could be getting this wrong but my memory is is that they were kind of helping to rebuild society by like taking this their theater troupe on the road post apocalypse Station Eleven that's pretty much the, the plot of Station Eleven by Emily St John Mandel that's true um, which, yeah <laughs> that's that's know, the plot I don't know if you ever read the story because it's uh, not but, that well known but um, it's a similar plot. And, and I'll direct you on you. We have Conscience of the King on the original Star Trek. I always just, beyond the main plot about the you know, war criminal and everything, I just love the idea of a roaming Shakespearean you know, acting troupe bopping around from planet to planet, performing yeah. Shakespeare for these remote- The Big Time movies. is another great one. This is uh, Fritz Leiber. Fritz, uh, Fritz Leiber's The Big Time, which is a yeah. sort of, uh, which is a time traveling theater, theater group. <laughs> Yeah, and and well, and I gotta say too, I think what's really the thing about that Doomsday Morning novel by C.L. Moore is that it is wickedly out of date because of having been written in the fifties and supposed to be the end of the world thing. But it really, really is weird and cool book. I, I you know, I appreciated it for what it, what it was, and and it's similar because we keep comparing their work because she and Lee Brackett were so similar, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of, it's a good pairing with The Long Tomorrow by Lee Brackett, um, which is a very different book, but also a um, very, very good post-apocalyptic novel. Um, Cora, uh, final thoughts on Chamblot as a story, and then we'll get into where people can find you. Yeah, I actually did reread it yesterday, and, um, and it's uh, still a, because it's been a, because it's been a few years since I last read it, so of course I wanted to to reread it to have it fresher in my mind. And I think any I think the first time I read it was just okay. This is totally not what I expected. But uh, the more you reread it, I think the better it gets. And uh, it's still I still find it hard I still find it hard to imagine that this was her first pro published story. I know it's insane because it's so polished and also that. Uh, that an unmarried uh, 22 or 23 year old bank clerk wrote this very, very, very erotic, sexually drenched, and uh, uh, because it's, it says sex metaphors, addiction metaphors. That's not what you would expect a 23 year old bank clerk uh, in the 1930s to write. So, of course, people <laughs> did have sex in the 1930s, they had premarital sex, and also she was engaged to this guy who killed himself or accidentally shot himself. We don't know what really happened to him. To him. But it's an... Yeah, but it's a a, call C.L. Moore the grandmother of tentacle porn? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> probably. I don't... I mean, uh, the Japanese probably got, got to it before. There are Japanese woodcuts of what we would call tentacle porn, which are older than this story. Yeah, it's so funny, but, too. It's, <laughs> well, yeah, we're. I don't know if we're ever going to get to the who who invented tentacle porn however um but i will i will say yeah this was really racy stuff for the era but you know then again like that's i think that's our looking back on it um because uh, we, we, we normally 30s. don't try to think about it but then i, I thought okay like she's, a, she's yeah more the age of my grandmother one grandmother was a bit younger the other was about was a bit older she's the age of my grandmother's so that's uh 
And uh, my grandfather's definitely knew what uh, knew what sex was. <laughs> See, a lot of this in my head, because my father died in his 80s, and he was born in 1936. So I kept thinking this was three years before my dad was born. And uh, which is just mind boggling to think about how long ago it was. But since this whole series is about the 1930s sci-fi, it's important to remember the 30s was a radical decade. Uh, there was a lot of radical stuff going on in the 30s. Um, the reason they had to, in the movies, there's a reason why they had to bring in the Hayes Code. Yeah. The movie, <laughs> pre-code movies show you what, maybe what the 30s were really like more than the post-Hayes Code movies, you know. Yeah, they were really, the early ones are really, the early 30s were, the movies were racy and also a lot of the pulps. They get more state after 1940 or late 30s. There was some kind of uh, censorship change, but the pulps, Pulps, depending on which one you read, but uh, no, it's not just the spicy pulps which were racy. The spicy pulps are just mostly kind of weird, uh, weird uh, in some ways, because it's like, okay, we can't write about actual sex, but so the, so the women are rising orgasmically while they are. My favorite, is, I think, is the one where a woman is executed, it's described how she, how she shivers and rises orgasmically as she's executed in the electric chair. Okay, maybe that's not the way you should do it, but it's, it's just weird. <laughs> But well, Weird Tales is, erot is pretty erotic for its era. It's true. Um, well, Cora, everyone can tell from, from uh, hearing you talk that you take the history of science fiction very, very seriously. Uh, tell the folks where you write about it uh, so yeah, they can okay. follow your work. You can find me at uh, corabulot.com, C-O-R-A-B-O-H-L-E-R-T.com, which is my main blog, blog and um, where I also review some where I talk about um, TV shows, movies, um, science fiction awards, anything that comes to mind. And also occasional review should get back to that because it sort of fell off the wagon because of, uh, of because life happened. Also review old uh, 1930s and 1940s science fiction stories on occasion, including several, some C.L. Moore stories. And um, yes. And you um, take very also... seriously promoting the fan writer, which right now we just lost the, um... Alex, Alexi, um, Alexei uh, Pension, okay. yes, he, Pension, just, uh, who, he was the first, I think, who actually won the fan writer. Yeah, Hugo. and you, you always do great work uh, promoting those of us who do fan writing and um, and, and amateur scholar work. The fan, the fan Hugos are, I think, important because they, and a lot of people just ignore them and just focus on, oh, best novel, best dramatic presentation long, if they can actually remember the name, and then it's like, but they forget the, the fan categories and the editing categories, which are also really important. important. Yes, very, very. Yes, okay. I'm a, I'm actually a finalist, and uh, in uh, and this time not this time, but uh, next week we'll know whether I won or not. That's not because right. I'm a best fan writer well, finalist this year, which is why I have my three, why I have my three rockets. <laughs> Are you, you're not going to Chicago? You're going to be? No, sadly not. Um, not yeah. uh, Me neither. Not. Pandemic so. and life happened, uh, happened. So I'll be there virtually. I'll be here sitting here in the middle of the night in an evening gown with a tiara and <laughs> wondering whether I will, whether I will get to give the speech I wrote or I have to write because I don't, I haven't written it yet. And yeah, so you can also find me at galacticjourney.org which is a science fiction fan scene. It's like any other science fiction fan scene. We cover science news, we cover books, magazines, movies, TV shows, but 55 years in the past. So it's 1967 now. It's a summer of love, love, yeah. which in Germany actually was not a summer of love, but a summer of pretty terrible riots, <laughs> riots happening and uh, people and police violence. 
Have Thought you heard about Galactic Thank Journey, Gurney? Yes. Have you heard about this before? Galactic Journey? They, I was just right. You should I, check I us know. out. Yeah, great. It's a great. Yeah, it was start, started by I'm, a local for me. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's um, our founder Gideon Marcus is from San Diego, just yep. like uh, David, and I think you know each other. You've met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've tabled in before. person. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've I sold mean, yeah. books yeah. together. He's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, he's great. It's also it was also a Hugo finalist this year, and. Uh, one of our writers is a fan artist finalist, Lorelai Esther. She's uh, the daughter of Gideon and uh, Janice, and she's a fan, fan artist finalist and the youngest Hugo finalist ever that we know of. She's only, she's 18. The yeah, earliest yeah. youngest was, I think, uh, Robert Silverberg, who was 20. Greg, you, you would be really, so last year, uh, well, because they always cover, Galactic Journey always covers 55 years in the past. They, yeah, they did. Star Trek started last year. Yeah, and it starts did. up again yeah. next they, month. <laughs> yeah, and they do the Star Trek episodes with the original commercials. And oh, wow. Yeah, they have a stream. They have a, a live stream of Star Trek, which I never get to watch simply because it happens in the middle of the night and you'll be like, okay, no, I'm not in the mood to watch Star Trek at 3 a.m. But uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, but uh, they, you, can, you can go there. So they have a standing invite link. Link. I think it, you can also they also have some friends over in person at the home to watch. Stuff. Yeah, I've thought about doing that because it's in town here, and and I I I was I did want to go for Balance of Terror, my favorite episode, but I didn't, and so uh, alas, um, we're into season two now. I think. Yeah, and our time should should start should start season two starts sometimes next year, yeah. next month. The, I mean. the fact that they get that they watch it with the original commercials is is just. Awesome. Yeah, they, 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 they cut in original well, problems, but it's period commercial. It's any rate, it's commercials from the period that might have run during Star Trek. Oh, okay. I don't know if it's really the original ones which ran there. And also, you get uh, to see the stuff which ran before Star Trek, which is some kind of Daniel Boone or something, a Western show. <laughs> That's awesome. Greg, your work. Well, this is the point where I can't resist bragging about the fact that as of now, I am officially a Weird Tales author. Oh yeah, I that's right. I have a story in the very next issue of Weird Tales, uh, Weird Tales number 366, which I believe is coming out eminently, and which is the very, is the, in fact, official sword and sorcery issue. And I wrote a, well, I think of it as, as a classic sort of Robert E. Howard, C.L. Moore sword and sorcery story with a twist, Guardians of the Sapphire Sword, Okay, that will be in, you know, Weird Tales 366, which I believe is coming out like shortly. I don't know the pub date. I know you can so, order it already. Yeah, so. you can. I've seen it's the cover at any rate advertised. <laughs> yes, with Paul Wiggleton. And yeah, I am, I am chuffed beyond all reason, beyond the fact that, hey, I made a sale. Hey, publication. There's, oh, wow, you know, bucket list. I get to be a Weird Tales author now. Along the same line, I've been writing a lot of stuff for short stories recently. I've been writing regularly for the official Star Trek Explorer magazine. I have a story in the current issue, now on sale, which is a story about Khan Noonien Singh, my first Khan story in 17 years. And I just recently had a successful Kickstarter. I am going to have a story in Thrilling Adventure Yarns 2022, edited by Bob Greenberger, and yeah, my story, this is supposed to be old-fashioned pulp stories is the idea, is in fact a swashbuckling sword and sorcery, very Robert E. Howard-esque story about a female barbarian swordswoman. So thank you, C.L. Moore. 
okay, a little bit of Jirel, a little bit of Lee Howard. So yeah, so I've got actually two sword and sorceries, old fashioned weird tales, <laughs> sword and sorcery stories coming out. I think um, Throwing Adventure Yarns comes out around January. I actually got the check yesterday. Um, <laughs> Your Tales comes out eminently. And in the meantime, I've been sort of writing fairly regularly for the Star Trek Explorer magazine. I think I have a story in issue five, which is- I read your uh, board one, the seven and nine one. It was very good. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I had a story about seven and nine in issue two. I had a con story in issue three. And I think I have a story, I don't know if it's in four or five, and I'm not sure I can reveal it, but that's, it's a TNG era story coming out soon. So that's been fun. Yeah, and your last Trek novel was a was a Bones one, right? Was a, a McCoy novel? Back in November, 2020, yes. It was Contest of Principles. And yes, it was my love letter to um, Dr. McCoy since I realized that, oh my God, I'd never written in a Bones-centric Star Trek novel before. So. I wanted to give McCoy some love. So he, he gets his own solo adventure while Kirk and Spock are occupied elsewhere. Okay. Awesome. Uh, well, Greg, I appreciate your time. I'm glad you were able to uh, uh, finish moving out your storage unit in order to have time <laughs> to do this today because I know that was the issue. And my buddy, even Zorik was going to fill in and then had like massive migraines last night. And so it just worked out that we were able to switch it back. Uh, my heart goes out to him, but I'm glad. You know, I almost, you know, I wonder, it's kind of last minute. Turn, you know, I thought we were going to be tied up this week. It turns out I have Sunday free. Let's see if there's still an opening. Oh, well, how about that? Okay. Yeah, know. well, I'm really glad to have you here. I'm, I'm bummed we couldn't uh, have a fourth chair, but um, uh, I, I'm sure even stoked that he, he read CL more anyways, because I think it was new to him. Um, so uh, yeah, and coming up next in this series, if uh, all goes as planned, will be Rule 18 by Clifford Samak um, and uh, with guests Alec Neville Lee, the author of Astounding, and uh, Seth Heasley, co-host of the Hugo's There podcast. So we'll see you next time for Rule 18. Uh, thanks for joining us, folks, and have a good one.